0: Hi, I'm Amanda. And I'm Rebecca. And this is Full Plate, Full Cup, where startup leaders turned executive coaches who believe that you deserve to be wildly successful and wildly happy. We interview trailblazing entrepreneurs, business leaders, and creatives so you can peek behind the curtain of how they got where they are today and start carving your own path towards success. Each episode shares personal stories as well as actionable takeaways that you can apply to begin living a more joyful and fulfilling life. Join us to learn how to scale your business, harness your power, and fill your cup. If you like what you hear, subscribe, leave a review, and share with a friend. Thanks for listening. Hello, and welcome back to the Full Plate, Full Cup podcast. We are so excited today to have someone that I have the pleasure of knowing personally for, gosh, like, over a decade now, Vanessa Bennett. And without further ado, let me give you a little intro to her. So Vanessa Bennett, LMFT, is a licensed holistic psychotherapist, clinical entrepreneur, mental health content creator, and author of the best-selling relationship book, It's Not Me, It's You. Her therapeutic approach integrates years of study and practice in depth, Buddhist, and yoga psychology. She co-hosts the Cheaper Than Therapy podcast, leads soul-based retreats and workshops, and creates and facilitates curriculum for nonprofit and corporate training events and conferences. Welcome Vanessa, we are so happy to have you. Thank you ladies, I'm so happy to be here. Yeah, well, so Vanessa and I met about gosh, it was like 10 years ago now. Um if we not did a longer. training. <laughs> yeah, it was 2012 something like that. But we did a training together that was called Urban Zen Integrative Therapy training, but at that time you were working in advertising and really dreaming of what you're doing now, which just, it gives me chills to think about it. So can you take us back to sort of those times and explain to our audience what you were doing then and how you knew, like in your gut, in your soul, wherever you knew it, that it just wasn't right?
1: Yeah. I mean, I kind of knew that something was off pretty soon into working only because it was one of those things where I was like, I know that I'm good at doing this, but I don't know that that means that I enjoy doing this. And don't get me wrong. I had a ton of fun. I mean, there's no better, I'd say, industry to be in in your 20s living in New York than advertising because we had big budgets and we had lots of parties and we traveled and you know, the celebrity partnerships, all that jazz. So I definitely had a lot of fun. But there was always a part of me that felt like I should be doing something different. I should be doing something more. I wanted to be, you know, giving back in a way that I didn't feel like I was in that industry. And so I was never, I wasn't really able to put my finger on what that thing was. I just knew that I had this constant feeling of like unrest. It was actually when I started my own therapy about 25. And it was at the kind of prompting of a friend of mine who was like, you just seem angry a lot. (laughs) Like you just seem mad all the time. And I was like, what? But man, I mean, our good friends can be really good mirrors if we allow them to be. Yeah. And so, yeah, I started my own therapy and just through that process started following what I call breadcrumbs, which is really what I use with my clients a lot, right? Where it's like, I didn't have to have it all figured out. I just needed to know what the next thing was that made me feel a sense of aliveness and so it was mm-hmm. really through therapy that I was actually able to hone into what that feeling of aliveness actually was in order to follow the breadcrumbs. So God, I've been, a, it's been a long journey.
0: <laughs> yeah. And I've been, I mean, I personally have been so inspired by your career pivot. Cause I remember the conversations that we were having back then, you know, you were working in advertising. I was working in nightlife, you know, same mm-hmm. kind of thing, right? Mm-hmm. Fun, exciting celebrities, but also, Ooh, this doesn't quite feel right. So I know it's been like a years long journey for you. So, I'm not going to make you tell the entire story, but what would you say like the top three most impactful steps that got you from working in advertising, kind of, you know, starting your therapy, knowing something wasn't right, and then, you know, being where you are today, thriving in this new career?
1: Top three. So, I think going back about the idea of really honing and building. A mindfulness practice and really getting in touch with who you are as a person. What brings you a sense of aliveness? What makes you feel that feeling of being obsessed with something? Like, I always say, like, that's always a good indication, right? Like, if you are so obsessed with the concept of something or the idea of something, or you hear something and you go down a rabbit hole, follow that, right? Because that's your soul's way of saying, like, there's something here for you that is interesting, right? So I would say, first and foremost, build that build that connection to self so that you are more in tune with when the soul does start to speak, right? So it might not feel like the work you're doing is necessarily aligned with career work, but understand that that kind of work that you might do, like in therapy or meditation or yoga, like that all helps. It's a really important Mm -hmm. building block. So that would be number one. Number two, I would say is to... Look around and really start to surround yourself with people who are not necessarily doing what you quote unquote want to do because you might not know what you want to do, but are at least also seekers and are willing to have conversations and go there and challenge each other and you know challenge you. Like I said about that friend that was like, I just feel like you know she took a risk <laughs> in saying something that I might have gotten really upset about. Surround yourself with people like that, not people who are just complacent in their everyday. And now listen, that's fine. I mean, mazel to people who like find their job at 19 and do that for 20 something years and they're cool with it, right? Um, But if that's not you, you need to find people who are similar because you need them to challenge you, right? So that would be number two. And then I guess the third one would be um, really start to work on your definition of what it means to take risks and what it means to stay safe. Because I will say that it's almost impossible for you to find the thing that fills you up and really, I don't really love the word purpose because I don't know, it just feels almost like unattainable for a lot of people. And it feels like, I feel like that keeps us stuck. Actually, it's kind of like the word happiness. It's like, what does that even mean? Right. But finding what I guess lights you up, I'll just use that term again. You've got to be willing to take risks and you've got to be willing to really embrace and embody what I like to say. There's no such thing as a mistake. There's no such thing as a wrong, a wrong decision or a wrong turn. It's all learning. But you've got to be willing to do that. And so many of us are stuck in this like perfectionistic culture of like, don't ever make a mistake. Don't ever look dumb. Always be smart. Always be one step ahead that we miss so many opportunities to grow and to learn. So you've really got to work on your relationship to what that means, this idea of taking risks. Otherwise, I don't I don't know that you'll ever get there.
0: Yeah. We talk with our clients a lot about microdosing risk, right? Mm-hmm. Finding, finding that, that edge where you're leaning in, but not so far that your nervous system kind of goes on the fritz. But on that note, you know we have a lot of people that we speak to who, you know, if they're beyond their early 20s, maybe they've had some degree of success in an industry, they're terrified of pivoting because they don't want to throw it away, right? They don't want to throw away all their experience. They don't want to throw away all of their uh, you know their hard work, maybe the salary band that they've worked their way up to, right? So what would you say to somebody who knows they're on the wrong path but is like, God, oh, I've just put so much work in and I don't want to throw it all away.
1: Those golden handcuffs are rough. I remember. And listen, I was a director of a team of 20 plus people. I was up there in the six figure bracket. I was becoming more and more comfortable by the day, right? Like comfortable as in like the money sense, finance sense. And when I made the decision, I mean, listen, it was a slow transition because I was able to go... My first year of grad school, I was doing while I was working full time. Not easy, but I was able to keep the salary When I had to rip the bandaid off though, I'll tell you what, I was like, well, I guess I'm just going to live on student loans for a little while. But I had to trust in myself that I would figure it out. And again, I think this goes back Mm -hmm. to our relationship with what does risk mean? And is there any such thing as right or wrong decision? Right? Nothing I did was wasted. Nothing. We've really got to work on this concept of everything is perfect. Everything is as exactly it should be. Right? And at the time, I remember having similar thoughts like, oh, I can't believe 10 years of my life. Like it took me until I was, I don't know, 30, 31 to figure this out. Meanwhile, here I am on the other side of it, an entrepreneur and the 10 years of marketing and advertising that I did, I use it every moment of the day, every moment, right? None of that was wasted. I thought about that. I thought that way for a very brief second until I got through onto the other side. Now I got my own business and I'm like, I can't believe I ever thought that like all of this makes sense. So again, it, it feels a little bit like we've got to get into kind of relationship to our fears, right? Like what are the fears that are keeping us stuck? What are the fears that are keeping us small? Those golden handcuffs again and challenging them, right? Because I think it's really important for a lot of us to understand that there is a reason why, how do I word this? Somebody benefits from us staying afraid. So somebody up top benefits from us staying afraid, because if we stay afraid, then we stay small. And if we stay small, we don't, we don't find what makes us come alive, right? We don't challenge things. We don't grow. And that works better in the kind of society that we live in, right? We need to stay small and unhappy and numbed out in order for this capitalistic, patriarchal, white supremacist culture that we live in to continue to run the way that it does. And so by you going against that and challenging that, you're actually challenging way more than just your own personal, oh, what do I want to do with my life? Like so much bigger than you, you know?
0: It's so interesting. I too spent the first 15 years of my career in the marketing world, primarily in New York City. Mm -hmm. And there is this fear, right? That when you follow, you know, what we call a soul paying full plate, full cup, this kind of nagging voice inside of you that keeps nudging you toward your calling, that if you follow that, that you're going to quote unquote, lose everything that you've worked for, everything that you've built. But I do so strongly believe that there are always common threads to be found between where you are and where you want to go. And it's mm-hmm. so beautiful when we can identify those, right? Because as you said, everything is perfect. Everything is working for you. Um, and I think that's just so important to acknowledge. So you were in advertising for 10 years and then you decided to follow your soul ping. I would love to hear when that ping started and what was like the final nudge Mm. that made you decide to go for it.
1: Yeah. I mean, I think that, so again, the path was a little windy. Like I didn't really know, again, I just knew that there was something. Right. And so that's why I always say like, it tends to come to most people, I think more in like a breadcrumb, right. Where it's like, what is that next step? And I always say to clients, like you shouldn't be on, let's say step C and trying to figure out what step X, Y, and Z look like, right? If you're on C, just look to D. That's it. That should be the only thing that you're focused on because you're going to, you're going to paralyze yourself with the what ifs because there's a lot of shit that's got to happen between CD and like X, Y, Z, right? So for me, when I started my therapy, I also started yoga for the first time. And so my spiritual practice came to me through my embodied practice, right? So getting in touch again with my body through yoga was really like an eye-opening Experience that I had never had before. Right. And so there was a moment where I thought, I'm obsessed with yoga. Like I said, that term obsessed, like I'm obsessed with it. Right. But not just the physicality of it, I was obsessed with all of it. So I wanted to study it more. Okay. I'm going to go get my teacher training certificate. Right. Not necessarily because I thought, oh, I'm going to be a yoga teacher forever and ever. Amen. It was just like, well, this is what makes me feel alive right now in this moment. So let me just, you know, fuel that, a fan that flame a little bit. So I did that. Then through that, I found out about, right, this is how the universe works. It kind of opened up this other thing into urban Zen. Oh, this is interesting. It's more of like a therapeutic yoga approach. And I can learn about, you know, um, Reiki and oils and all these different modalities. Cool. I'm going to do that now. So all the while I was doing this, I was still working full time, right? So then I did that. And then I did a nutrition program. And then I was just taking all these little like bits and bobs, right? It was like, I was on B, then I was on C, then I was on D, then I was on E. I was just following those breadcrumbs. As I'm like deeply steeped in all of these, um, through the conversations I was having with my therapist, I remember her saying to me, and mind you, my therapist is a psycho-spiritual counselor. So her background is more in spiritual psychology. And I remember her saying, there is this grad school that I feel like you would be really interested in. Not necessarily... She was like, I'm not pushing you, not necessarily to be a therapist, but like it just feels like something you'd be interested in. And so she actually brought up the concept of Pacifica, which is where I ended up going. And I thought it was interesting. That was the first moment that I was like, oh, grad school, maybe I could be a therapist. So I started researching. I was in New York at the time. I was in a relationship at the time. I was doing my pros and cons charts, and I was visiting all these schools in New York. And my relationship was struggling at that time. And I had these conversations with him for years that I was done with New York. I was ready. I needed a breath. I needed a break. I loved it, but it just like was. It was. It felt like it was kind of keeping me, like, hold, held down a little bit. And he was so like he dug his heels in. And we're not going anywhere. I'm not going anywhere. And I was like, all right. Well, here's the thing. The kind of schools that are calling to me, don't exist in New York. They don't exist in the East Coast period. They just don't. I had looked. I had gone to all these schools. I had researched. I had done all the visits. And there were two schools in California. They're the only schools, even still, well, there might be one brand new one in California now, but that offer the kind of program in Jungian psychology, depth psychology that I wanted to study. So he was pissed. And I packed a suitcase for a weekend. And I took a trip by myself to California. And I saw the school in SF. And then I took a road trip by myself down the coast. And I'll tell you, I'm only telling this story because this is like that last moment that you said, I got out of my car bright and early. It was like 6 a.m. The sun was just coming up on campus of what would be the university I went to, Pacifica. And my entire body had that knowing in that moment. The hairs on my arms stood up. I welled up with tears. And I was just like, this is exactly what I need to be doing right now. And again, that doesn't tell me what my career is going to look like, but it was like, this is what I should be doing next. right? And so... I made it happen from there. And the logistics like that shit, whatever, that'll fall into place. I think the hardest thing for all of us is to actually have those knowings sometimes and to actually pay attention to them and act on them. You know, I think we get too caught up in like the, how am I going to make this happen?
0: (laughs) Totally. What I really like about what you keep referring to as following breadcrumbs, I think that's so brilliant is that it's sometimes hard for us to know what Z even looks like if Mm -hmm. we're only at A, right? Mm -hmm. And so by moving from A to B, B to C, C to D, it really helps us one step at a time uncover what we actually want, what's actually going to serve us, as you just said, what the logistics might look like, right? Yeah. And so, as you followed these breadcrumbs, you made a lot of change in your life, and you know, I'm sure it took, it happened over time, but it was a lot of change to to make happen for yourself. And a lot of people would be paralyzed by fear mm-hmm. at some point during the process. I imagine. How did you manage? All of this change in whatever time frame it occurred?
1: A lot of therapy. Um.
0: How <laughs> about your therapist? A real. lot of
1: therapy. <laughs> um. Just having a really good support system, I think first and foremost, right? I think you need to have supportive friends and supportive people again that are like there and that are challenging you and that are not really letting you fall back into old habits. Like they're the ones that are be like, "No, this isn't what you wanted. Like I'm almost not going to let you do this." you know And I, I had a lot of people around me doing that and cheering me on. You know And I want to say too, for anyone listening, I did not come from money, so I also want to put this out there. Because I do think sometimes people think <laughs> that this idea of like yeah. changing careers or getting rid of golden handcuffs, I'm sure a lot of people are like, yeah, yeah, you had support. No, I didn't. Zero, zero support, right? So my undergrad, I did that shit all by myself. I'm still in debt from undergrad. My grad school, I did that shit by myself. I'm still in debt from grad school. Like, I am not saying in any way that I had anything given to me. Um, I grew up with a single mom, broke as a joke, right? Like, I, I know what it means to struggle. And so I just want to like, first and foremost, clear that. (laughs) Um, Because when I know fear, I know fear. Like when I say that, right? I know what that feels like. And But there was always something in me that just felt. And again, I keep coming back to this concept of like spiritual practice. I knew that it would work itself out. I just knew that if I did what I was supposed to do, right? So like if my end of the bargain is following those pings, is following those breadcrumbs and listening to what the universe is trying to tell me, then the rest of it's going to happen. I am not responsible for all of it. I'm only responsible for what I'm responsible for. And so the more that I followed each breadcrumb, that was when doors opened. That was when I met people. That was when conversations happened, right? But if I had kept myself on A or B because X, Y, and Z seemed too scary, I would have never met those people and had those amazing conversations that led to this, that led to that. And so, yeah, I mean, I think support, therapy, trust, having a really grounded spiritual practice was important to me to get me through a lot of the stress that inevitably Mm -hmm. comes from this change. Because yeah, you're right. I mean, I didn't just change careers. I left a six plus year engagement and relationship. I left a city that I had, the only city I'd ever known. I moved across the country. My whole family's in New York. There was a lot of shit (laughs) that changed in a really short amount of time.
0: I'm so inspired. I'm so happy we're having this conversation. And thank you for clarifying that because I think that is something that we really try to point out. You know, our goal is for people to understand what's possible for them. Mm-hmm. And when you're sitting there with those lingering doubts in your mind, well, she had this or she had that or she knew this person or she had this trust fund, right? It can really create enough of a block in your mind that you're like, this is this lie to me. This, right. this type of thinking doesn't apply to me because I don't have that safety net or I don't have those connections, Right. Newsflash, everybody! It applies to you, so yep. you're not you're not off the hook. You're not off the hook. Totally. Um, so you studied and specialized in depth psychology, and what's interesting, you know, I'm in this world. I've, I've heard of Jungian psychology. I've actually never heard the term depth psychology. So, can you please explain to us what that means, what it is, why, and why you were attracted to that path in particular?
1: Yeah, depth psychology, analytical psychology. So that actually is the practice of Jungian psychology. So depth psychology is what they call the psychology of the soul. You know, I think what I was originally interested in was how holistic the approach really seemed to be. So there was space for all of it, but it was less about the behavioral side of psychology, which... Listen, I'm also, I have a lot of training in mindfulness-based cognitive therapy. I mean, there is a time and a place for CBT approaches. I like to call them the Band-Aid on the bullet hole. Like Mm -hmm. sometimes we need a Band-Aid to stop the bleeding. We can't function. And so we need to be able to get to a place of functioning. But then once we get to a place of functioning, are we getting in there and healing the wound? Because if we're not, it's going to keep bleeding and we're going to just keep replacing Band-Aids, right? And so a lot of ways, especially in this culture, we love a good Band-Aid. We don't love to get in and heal the bullet hole right? It's a collective issue that we have in Western society. Just take a pill, just slap something on it, right? Um, But not really get in there and, and get to the root cause. That was always really important to me. And depth psychology really called to me because it's all about exactly what it says, the depths. You go deep in order to come up, in order to find that healing, you've got to get in and go deep, right? There also was a lot of components to depth that I loved because you know Jung was a great studier of indigenous people. Everything saying that most of our psychology that we understand today is definitely like led by white cis heteronormative men, right? Like, yeah. which is really uncomfortable for me. And I would say, especially for the the day that he lived in the 30s and 40s, Jung was also one to give credit where credit was due. Many times he would talk about the cultures that he was studying with and learning these things from. And so he really brought a different lens to psychology. I mean, definitely more than Freud did. And, and him and Freud were were buddies back in the day. So there was just something about it that felt like it was calling me from a more feminine place as well. Mm. Um, there's this saying that we have in psychology that Jung, that Freud is the father of psychology and Jung is the mother of psychology. And Jungian psychology is is very much in the realm of more of the feminine essence. And I think coming from advertising, coming from New York City, coming from being the kind of person I was, I think my soul was just really longing to get more in touch with that feminine side of the energy within me. And this was kind of the jumping off point for that. Yeah. I
0: can relate to that a couple of Mm -hmm. of hard, hard hard-hitting New York ladies on this call. I feel you. Yeah. (laughs) So you are also an expert in codependency and codependency is one of those things like Instagram loves to talk about codependency. It's one of those words that you see thrown around a lot, specifically in relation to uh, romantic relationships. But, you know, at Full Plate, Full Cup, we focus on the workplace, career, life path, et cetera. So I'd love to hear from you, from your understanding, how does codependency come into play in the professional sphere when we're talking about working, career, etc.? And how do you begin to to address it if you're like, oh, shit, I'm a codependent?
1: Well, we're all codependent. So I'm just going to put that out there now. (laughs) If you're like, I'm not. Yes, you are. Uh, If you live in this society, you 100% are codependent. And the only reason I say that is because we live in a codependent society. And so by nature, it's kind of like asking a fish to know it's in water. Right. Um, and you're right. Like, I hate how the word has gotten thrown around. And also, I do think in this specific way, we need to understand the importance of codependency as a more of a societal issue, less of a like, oh, there's something wrong with me personally issue. And so, you know, the way that I describe codependency in kind of its simplest form is if you're good, I'm good. If you're not good, I'm not good. So codependency isn't as simple as just, oh, I'm the wife of an alcoholic husband, which is really kind of where the term originated. Or that like, I'm the kind of person who gets completely lost in my romantic relationships. Like, yeah, sure. That could be a symptom of um, or a marker of codependency, but that's not all that it is. And at its essence, being codependent in a relationship truly just means that I don't understand what it means to stay with myself. I lose myself in other people, right? So if somebody else is upset, I feel that and act accordingly. I'm not okay just being with myself and letting that person be upset, right? I might jump into trying to fix it. I might jump into um, changing who I am, her, how I act in order to make them feel better, right? Um, codependency shows up in lack of boundaries. What do lack of boundaries have to do with? Well, it has to do with my discomfort around other people being uncomfortable. Codependency, mm. right? <laughs> yeah. It all ladders up, guys. <laughs> I'm a codependent. Oh, no. We all are. Welcome. <laughs> Welcome to the club. Um, But I see this a lot in the workplace because for many of us, I would say also, especially women, we have a really hard time speaking up, right? Not falling into that people pleaser category. Again, setting boundaries, right? Speaking our truth, regardless of who it upsets or like what feathers it ruffles. Uh, And so doing the work of healing codependency benefits all relationships and work is included in that. Um, because you're able to show up just more as who you really are, your true sense of self, without it being based on what somebody else thinks, believes, right, and how that makes you feel. If that makes sense,
0: how it makes too much up. sense. And yeah. <laughs> I know. I know. I know I'm like, oh shit, we're all codependent. Oh, Welcome man, to the we dark, dark side, ladies. ladies. <laughs> yep, yep. So, so Vanessa, I discovered your work like many people out there on Instagram. Unfortunately, we we did not do a training together. Um, (laughs) But, you know, as you're well aware, I'm sure there are tons of therapists, coaches, teachers, everyone in between making content on social media. And it is a crowded freaking market. Mm -hmm. So how did you find and define your unique voice on social media and start making it work for you? Because I think I can speak for myself. And Amanda, when I say sometimes we feel like we're working for the man on social media.
1: Amen. Yeah, I uh, I have a very strong hate slash love. I'll always said, I won't even say love hate. I'll say hate slash love relationship with Meta. <laughs> and even saying that word out loud, I'm sure I'll get blacklisted somehow by even saying it, right? Um, we'll weep it out. I know exactly. Like it's yeah. a good, dirty word, right? Yeah. I mean, I I think I I still struggle with it. I flip-flop back and forth all day, every day. It helps to have a partner who kind of in a sense had like paved the way before me. So uh for those who don't know my partner, the angry therapist, he he was a therapist for. I mean, he'd already been practicing for ten years when him and I met, and he had already been kind of towing the line of being out there in the social media world. And so he kind of gave me permission, but also some like tips and you know tricks along the way, which I'm very grateful for. But I still had to make it work for me. You know, him and I are very different in the way we create content. He's like he likes to document everything and has his phone in his face twenty four seven, which makes me insane. Um, I'm very different, right? And so it's a day-by-day relationship. I have to constantly be checking in with what feels like it's in alignment with me and then pivot accordingly. I will say once I started looking at social media as, um, well, twofold, there is a part of it where it was my it was originally when I started Instagram way back in the day when it first started in like, I don't know, 2012. It was just my personal account, right? Even my name is still the same name I had uh, back in the day. So there are still times where I'll post more personal things because my family and my friends still follow me and I I still kind of keep people updated there. But then there's like this other 50% of how I approach it, which is really just it's a calling card. It's become a website, right? Very few people are actually going to your website nowadays unless they're doing something specific like booking a session or something that they need to go to the site for the functionality. And even that, we have LinkTree, right? And so when you start to look at it as more of a calling card or more of a, a website. You can change your relationship to it slightly in that this is where people are going to understand who I am, kind of what they're going to get from me if they work with me as a therapist or if they listen to my podcast, right? And it's a way for them to get comfortable with me as a person. Because as we know, people make relationships with the person, not necessarily the brand, right? So, and this comes from my marketing days. um, You know, back in the day, my first job, I was at Vitamin Water before it got bought by Coke. And... Vitamin water was all about the personality, right? It was the brand that you like people fell in love with. I mean, yeah, the products were good, but it was really about like that funny, sassy, off the cuff kind of brand. And I'll tell you, that wasn't made up. Originally, when that brand started, it was like 20, not even 15 of us, like tag rag, 20 something year old creative kids sitting around a ping pong table, writing all that funny copy that you see on the bottles, writing all those funny TV commercials. Now it's Coca Cola. It's a little bit different. You know, I'm sure they have like, a very different approach, but the original, the OG. And so that's what I mean when I say, like, people fall in love with the person behind the brand, not really the brand itself. And so, like, accepting that and acknowledging that has been really helpful for me in the way that I embrace social media and how I use it. And guess what? That might mean sometimes I don't listen to all this stupid everyday that freaking algorithms change. Oh, today you have to post eight times a day in order to stay on somebody's feed. Tomorrow it's going to be 32 times a day. I can't, can't let it consume me that much. I post when I need to post and I've got a system that works and I just, I systematize it. It's all I can do.
0: The number one thing people ask us is, how do I heal from burnout and how do I prevent my burnout from coming back? We've been teaching burnout busting tools to our one-on-one executive clients for years. And now we are bringing these strategies directly to you with our first ever digital course from burnt out to lit up. Over four weeks, we'll guide you step-by-step to get your group back and reclaim your life. And if you're thinking, I have no time for this, we've got you. This no fluff course is intentionally designed to take less than 20 minutes each day and will not only leave you feeling more engaged and enthusiastic, but we'll also set you up to keep burnout at bay for the long haul. Use code PODCAST to get $30 off your course fee. To learn more about this course and to sign up, visit fullplatefullcup.com slash course. Again, go to fullplatefullcup.com slash course and use code PODCAST for $30 off. You deserve to beat burnout for good and feel like you again. Yeah. And I think it's really important to that the, what you said about like checking in with yourself and not being afraid to pivot what you're sharing and how much you're sharing and and how you're sharing it. Because I think especially on social media, whether it's Instagram, Twitter, LinkedIn, people can see right through the bullshit Mm -hmm. that if you are trying to play to the algorithm or trying to do what other people are doing, because you think it's going to work for you, it's not going to resonate with them because like you said, they're here for the person, not for the brand. And so yeah. I think that's such an important takeaway. So, um, I did visit your website actually, like your real www.website, <laughs> not your link, not your Instagram. <laughs> you <know>. and, <laughs> uh, it's beautiful. But I, you know, I noticed that you have, you have so many offerings. You have a few offerings that are coming soon. of course is coming soon. You have groups coming soon. You have your book, you have two podcasts that you host. Oh my gosh. <laughs> <laughs> How do you know what you want to launch next? And when is it business, intuition, your audience asks for it, some combo? Do you know when to launch it?
1: Yeah, it's definitely some combo. Um, I think that this, again, goes back to the original practice I was talking about, about being in alignment with yourself so that you can... Your ears can be open when those kind of hits, like those kind of intuitive downloads when they come through, right? And if I didn't have that practice, I wouldn't be open to those moments of being like, oh, this feels right. This feels like the next right step. Yeah, I have uh, probably too many plates in the air at any given time. My my best friend slash co-host is always like, you do the most. I'm always like, I know, it's a problem. This is my constant, like, I'm a New Yorker, right? It's the constant, like, I got to like put down some of these plates. Uh, and sometimes it takes having one or two people around you to be like, okay, I'm going to take this plate from you. This no longer makes sense. Just let it go <laughs> as I'm like gripping it and being like, you're not taking this from me, right? Because I could do all the things all the time, but I don't do them well when I'm trying to do all the things all the time too. It's a combination. It's a little bit of like, what is my audience asking for? It's been a little bit of trial and error for example, uh, this world of online courses—you know—it's hit or miss. Like it used to be a big thing; it's not so much anymore. I've pivoted more into live stuff, like live workshops. During the course of the pandemic, my partner and I started uh, an online, like a wellness school, basically, where there was multiple classes going on all week, every week, and leading groups. Right, and through that, there was a real like hunger that was awakened in me to do more of this group work, and so that then birthed something else, right? But again, it goes back to the original conversation around like nothing, there's no wrong decisions. There's no wrong choices. Like nothing is wasted, right? Experiment, 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 experiment. Don't get attached to anything. John, my partner says, because he was a screenwriter in his past life. And he says, there's a there's a term in screenwriting called like getting comfortable killing your babies. And I was like, oh, that feels a little aggressive. But the point is, is like as a screenwriter, you get so attached to this one idea, right? This one script, you've worked 10 years on it that you won't let it go. And it ends up being the downfall of your career because you just won't let it go. And then you won't work on anything else and you won't put your time and energy in. And he's like, no, you have to learn to kill your babies. If it's not being received, if it's just not getting the steam that it needs to, let it go. Maybe it'll come back later. Maybe it won't, but you've got to free yourself up for other things. And so I think that's been actually a really good practice for me too, is as much as I hate that term, like learning to kill my babies, living by that where I can.
0: Yeah, it's funny. I I recently listened to um the is it the, the creative act Rick Rubin's new book. Yep. And um he kind of tells a version of that story when it comes to creative work, right? Because yeah. and I think this goes back to what you said about social media. It's like you don't necessarily know which offering is you know if you have three plates right that you put into the fire the plate that you are obsessed with like that plate's not baby right that's the plate that's just gonna yeah and so yeah that is the um the the beauty and also the the challenge of of entrepreneurship is like put, not being afraid to put stuff out there and then not being afraid for it to be like wah, 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 wah. yeah and
1: i will say too again like i'm 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 going to make him listen to this cuz i'm giving him a lot, of, a lot of credit in this conversation <laughs> so john <laughs> When we first started dating, um, I remember, you know, again, very, I'm very perfectionistic. It's like, I wanted everything to be perfect and right. And I was working on a course at the time around mindfulness, and I remember him saying, um, "I want you to post, and I probably had like 2,000 followers at the time. I remember him saying, like, "I want you to post on your Instagram that the course is going to be ready October 1st." And I was like it was like, I don't know, September. I was like, but it's not. He's like, "Post that it. it's going to be ready October 1st." And I was like, "What are you taught?" He's like, "Do it?" Because if you post that, it'll be ready by October 1st. (laughs) And I remember the first time I did that and I put it out there and I was like, what am I doing? And again, I only had like 2000 followers, but there's something about like, oh shit, like I've put it out there and now there's accountability that I don't know how I did it, but I got my shit together and I had it ready and it went off without a hitch. And of course I was nervous and all that stuff, but it wasn't perfect when I put it up, but it was good enough and it did the job and it got out there and I got feedback and I adjusted as I went. Instead of being like it's got to be perfect before I ever put it out there for people to see, and yeah. he's great at that. Like he he has this mentality of like build the bus while driving it, which like gives me anxiety just thinking about. But so we can meet, or we meet in the middle in a lot of things. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's helpful. Yeah.
0: Well, speaking of your husband, so you guys recently co-authored a book called "It's Not Me, It's You." You both work in kind of tangential, you know, fields. How do you guys make it work without like, you know, breaking up? How do you how do you how do you make it work? I'd love to know.
1: Yeah. I mean, first I will say we're not married. I always just kind of call that out because most people, I think, just assume, yeah. right? Which is even I did. In yeah. yeah. Most people yeah. assume he's my baby daddy. So I have that. <laughs> uh, you know, we do all the things. We we own homes together, we, you know, we have a kid together, all these things. But he had been married and divorced prior. I had been engaged before. And we just both of us have a very like relationship with marriage we're like I don't know maybe that makes sense maybe that doesn't but I say that out loud because I want to give permission to people out there who are maybe not going the traditional path to know like you're not alone it's a good question I think we're still figuring it out every day uh working as much as we do together can be really tough not as tough for him he tends to be more the anxious in the relationship so I think if he could work with me all day every day and even when I sleep he would be happy doing that <laughs> and I'm the more avoidant which is like Please leave me alone. I need you to stop talking to me. Right. So we have to balance it. It's a constant balance. But, you know, I, I love the Esther Perel quote that fire needs air. And I'm constantly reminding him of that. Like, this is important. It is important for us to desire each other and miss each other and have time away from each other in space because it's only going to make us want to be with each other more. But we work really well together. And I think it's probably because we both speak the language, but we're both also very aware of what the other person's strengths are. And we allow them to kind of shine in their strength without really trying to change that about the other person, even if it's irritating sometimes to us. Uh, and vice versa. We also know what the other person's quote unquote weaknesses. And so we're able to like step in and not get like offended when the person's doing that. Um, but yeah, it's a lot of air, Amanda. It's yeah. a lot of air. Yeah. <laughs> That's what how we do it, about without killing is- each other.
0: Although you guys are obviously uh, romantic partners first, business partners second, like that advice really resonates for people who are co-founders, for people who are yes. launching businesses together. I just, I just posted about this on LinkedIn, but like people joke about having like a work wife and a, or a work husband. But when you go into business with somebody, you, they pretty much are your spouse. Yeah. Uh, you spend just as much time with them. You're sharing bank accounts potentially. Like yep. there's a lot that, that goes, that goes into it. So
1: well, um, yeah, thank you for saying that. I mean, the number of times that people assume that Danae and I are actually a couple is hilarious. Just so I'm like, yeah, I mean, she's hot, I'd do it, you know? <laughs> but they think that all the time. And it, it yeah. is because you do start to act like this person is. I mean, they basically are, like you said, your other wife or husband, right? Yeah. Um, and so I think it's just as important the kind of work that we do on our relationships at home. We actually have to keep doing that kind of work on our relationships and business and like growing together and working to you know, have good communication and how do we fight and things like that are really important. You know, Danae and I were just on a retreat together in Costa Rica and we had, we had a bit of a a flare up between the two of us. And we were in the midst of running a retreat for 20 people. We had to really work through it. And then we actually just brought it into the group and the next group. And we were like, let's talk about conflict. Let's talk about how we do this in a safe way and how, you know, on the other side of rupture can be a deepening of intimacy. And what does that look like? And so I guess like, Walking the walk, right? Yeah. Not just talking the talk. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Um, and, and kind of a, a similar line of questioning. Now, how old is your daughter? Is she two?
1: Three. Two. Yeah, she's just turned three. three okay.
0: Mm-hmm. All okay. right. Oh, she's like the same age as mine. I don't know why. I thought she was younger. You know, um, I obviously knew you before you were a working mom. Now you are a working mom. You've joined the the ranks of, mm-hmm. of the soldiers who yes. somehow manage to gosh, how do we manage it? I, I would love to know for you how did motherhood? How did it change your career? How did it change the way you relate to your career? You know, how do you make it work? All of the above. That's a big question. I'm still
1: figuring it out. You know, <laughs> I, um, I, and also becoming a mom during the pandemic, right? Like that in and of itself has like a whole other layer to it. It's a day by day thing. It changes every day. Uh, you know, she's still young enough where she's not in like a traditional school. So it's not like, I've got that guaranteed time every day. But I've had to also learn to work in ways. And by the way, I'm on the path right now of diagnoses for ADHD on top of all of the other things. And so like, how do you work with the structures that you have been given or the structures that you choose? Like having a kid, I've had to not be super wed to any one way of working. And that's been hard. So Mm -hmm. pre-kid, I had a kid later, like we're about the same age. And so I was 36, I think, when she was born. I had 36 years to get really comfortable with my routine. And the way that I did things and the best way that I worked and the, you know, the way I didn't work so well and all these things, I was like very comfortable with myself and kids come in and they're like, ha ha ha, <laughs> you think, you know, <laughs> I'm going to shit all over everything that you think, you know, right. <laughs> and you're yeah. going to be forced to change everything about like the way you look at yourself. My practice is constantly coming back to like, why am I so wed to doing it this one way? And And can I get comfortable with it not being the way that I thought it should be or should look right. And that's been hard. I mean, I was like, I only meditate in the morning. It's the way that I do it. You know, I have to be a morning meditator. And kids are like, yeah, no, (laughs) your mornings will never be yours again until maybe (laughs) I'm 18. So this whole idea of even like being comfortable killing your babies, I think applies to this too. It's like, we've got to be a little bit more comfortable with discomfort. Can we use, um, like, for example, just use meditation instead of lamenting over the fact that I don't have my 20 minutes in the morning to sit in silence. Can I use the time that i'm packing her lunch as a form of meditation. Mm. Like we've got to be able to pivot, right? I mean i think that's one of the things that motherhood teaches us more than anything is to be malleable and to like let go of control in a way because kids laugh at that. You know, there's no such thing. So number one, first and foremost, let go of the control. But asking for help. I mean this might sound cliche. I think we get told this all the time, but but asking for help has been huge where we moved we have a neighbor across the street who's got older kids and we have really fallen into a sense of community with them. And it's, I have so many friends that will come over and be like, this is what I feel like I've always longed for. Like, how did you make this? So we have like two neighbors that are both across the street from us who have kids. And it's constantly like my kids over there, their kids are over here. Like mom's doing something, go over and play with them. Right. And we have this very like open door, the kids are running around and I'm like, this is what we all dream of this like mom, you type thing. Yes. Right. And so, um, where can you establish that? Like I, I it's so important for us to establish the sense of community. So we're not doing it by ourselves because it's stupid to think that we can, you know? Yeah.
0: So, so I'm expecting my first child in less than three months and I, Oh
1: girl, I love lover.
0: I love my morning routine half for years. So I'm
1: say goodbye, like like wrap it up in a bow, do a little ritual around letting it go. No joke. Like I'm half joking, but I'm not like, honestly, like mourn it because it's not going to look like that ever again. I'm not kidding. When I say that I'm being dead real, but mourn it and like pay it reverence, be in the discomfort and the kind of like the grief that's going to come from that being lost. And be okay with like, be in touch with that grief and then know that it's going to take a new form. But yeah, girl, say goodbye.
0: <laughs> I know, <laughs> the Rebecca. Grief is- I'm, the grief is not talked about enough, for
1: yeah. sure. Well, I'm writing a book about it right now because you're right, it's not. So that'll yeah. be the next book. I'll <laughs> be on the lookout, uh-huh. fabulous. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. yeah,
0: I'm glad that you and I got extra close after my second kid because after the first kid, I I would have scared the shit out of you of having a baby by baby number two, I'm like, beautiful, You find your way. They're slow. Baby number one, I was like, oh, can't do anything anymore. So I like I haven't been setting an alarm for months. I'm just like, I'm gonna enjoy it while I can before I let it go. yep, you know?
1: enjoy it. <laughs>
0: I Trust and believe. Uh, So you, you've accomplished so much. I mean, throughout your entire career, right. But especially since the the moment or time period during which you decided to leave advertising and pursue what you're doing now, how do you continue to stay inspired and stay motivated to keep doing what you're doing?
1: Yeah. Day by day. I love my, it's my answer for everything. I mean, really it, it does come back to a day by day, you know, presence practice, there are days. There are days even now where I, I don't. And it's not that I don't enjoy it. There's days that I get really overwhelmed, you know? I mean, I was running a team of twenty people, and I am now the team of twenty people trying to do all of those things for myself, and it can be a lot and really overwhelming. Uh, and so I have to really just be in constant relationship with myself. like, where am I putting my energy? Where are my priorities? Um am I holding on to something that I shouldn't be holding on to? you know, how can I make this work better for myself? How can I forgive myself more? It's a lot of these practices that I would just do in life that I also have to apply to business because I have a lot of things I want to do it's just how I am right I'm constantly coming up with new things and new ideas and and so if I am not constantly in a situation where I'm looking at myself being like okay take a breath like what feels out of alignment how can you shift then I am going to start to be unhappy and I am going to start to be miserable in it right and I I think a lot of times when I see people that get super miserable in what they're doing I question like is it the thing that you're doing or is it the way that you we have a very unhealthy relationship to work in general across the board right and and is it more about us changing what that relationship is, sometimes first and foremost, before even changing the thing that we're doing. Because Mm. if that's how you work now, that's how you're going to work when you change careers. Like bet your ass. If you have toxic work kind of patterns and habits, those are going to follow you. I see it in myself all the time. And so it becomes less about like, oh, well, if only I change my job and my career, my life will be better and I'll be happier. Nope. Don't believe that. I don't believe that for a second. It's more about Getting again in right relationship with yourself, your relationship to work, your relationship to the people that you work with, right? Going back to like boundaries, people pleasing, all the codependency stuff. Um, Because wherever you go, there you are. <laughs>
0: uh, say it louder. <laughs> <laughs> so, so you have a million things that you want to do, but what is one big future goal that you would love to speak into existence with us on the podcast today? Uh,
1: uh, I've got a lot we've got a lot kind of in the works right now. There's things that we're working on that feel like way bigger than myself. Like it definitely feels like something is working through me. Oh God, I don't even know how to verbalize what it is because there's so many of them. But I think just like platform, it's not about like, oh, I want to be famous. It's not that. It's more like, I want to change the way. And I feel like Danae and I both share in this vision of continuing to be the foot soldiers to change the patriarchal structure in which we live and work. And I do a lot of work with women in group settings um, on retreats and really are just challenging what it is that we know and have believed, right? The programming that we've been given. And Danae and I are really working on how do we get a larger platform so that we can bring this Honestly, life-altering work, and it's not like I am the one that's changing people's lives. Again, it feels more like things working through you than necessarily you, like ego. But having a platform that makes that more possible, um, I think, is ultimately the goal. And I and I I guess I'll kind of leave it at that because I think that platform could take many different forms. And so I almost don't want to like put something specific. You know, I could be like, oh, TV, or oh, and it's like, yeah, but it could take more forms. And I don't want to put a, I don't want to put guardrails on it. It could be bigger than that. So. But just, yeah, continuing to be that foot soldier and like, how do I do that as big as possible? You know,
0: we are living into that reality with you. We are, yes, ma'am. <laughs> we are, we are foot soldiers of that reality. So yep. we are, we are glad that you shared that vision with us. Uh, well, we could talk to you all day, obviously, Same. but um, we have reached the portion of the show where we ask some rapid fire questions that we hope. Okay. Provide some really uh, like concise takeaways, bite-sized takeaways that our listeners can take and immediately apply to their lives. So what is one tip for working smart?
1: Mm, Working smart, right? So obviously what comes up is this idea of like working smarter, not harder, learning to kill your babies. I Mm. I think that applies to everything, right? It's like, you gotta learn to let things go and forgive yourself and let go of the perfectionism and just um, keep trying, keep experimenting, be in a state of play. I think it's just so important and we don't let ourselves really hang out there. You know, we think we gotta have it all figured out and we don't, just gotta play more and then trust that the rest will follow. Yeah. What is one tip for working happy? Working happy would be relationship to self. So no matter what you're doing work-wise, if you don't have a solid relationship with self, it's it's not gonna look happy. And also not expecting work to make you happy. Uh, That's also not work's job. It's not your partner's job. It's not your children's job. It's nobody's job, but yours. And so stopping expecting that something external outside of yourself is going to make you happy, I think is actually one of the keys to working happy. Love that so much. And (laughs) Rebecca, sorry.
0: (laughs) No, take it away, Amanda. She's in it, rapid fire. I was just so wrapped in what you were saying. Where can our (laughs) listeners find you?
1: Um, All the things, right? So Instagram, Vanessa S. Bennett. Um, I do some stuff on TikTok as well. The Coda Yoda website is vanessabennett.com. My podcast, Cheaper Than Therapy. Uh, I also have a private online community, which is through the cheaper than therapy platform. So You can find out all that stuff on my Instagram, good old Linktree, upcoming retreats, all that jazz.
0: <laughs> well, well, Vanessa, thank you so much for being with us today and sharing all of your wisdom. We're going to be on the lookout for more of those breadcrumbs, more play, more experimentation, more knowledge of self in our careers. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you. We so appreciate it.
1: Thank you, ladies.
0: Thanks for joining us for this episode of full plate, full cup. If you found this episode helpful, please make sure to subscribe, leave a review, and share it with a friend. To learn more about the Full Plate Full Cup methodology, or to work with us in a more personal way, find us on Instagram at Full Full Cup. That's at F U L L P L A T E F U L L C U P, or online at www.fullplatefullcup.com. www.fu l l p l a t e F-U-L-L-C-U-P dot